The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. Something I'm always trying to do each Sunday, particularly in this series in 1 Thessalonians, is to demonstrate and model what are principles of good Bible study. That means you pay attention to context, you do some word studies, you see the division of thought and the movement of a passage. Whenever we want to do a good Bible study, disciplined, there's always two words we have to understand. The first word is exegesis. That means we actually get out of a passage what is there. We read and study it so that with accuracy, with precision, and with exactness. The other word is exegesis, sorry, eisegesis. That means we sometimes read into a passage what we want to be there. We add to its truths and emphasis that are our preferences, obviously our proper choice, Sunday by Sunday, night by night, whatever you do, must be for exegesis. This morning is a great passage, and if you have a Bible or your cell phone, whatever you read from, uh, would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 to 18. We'll go through this literally verse by verse. So I really encourage you this morning to have it open in front of you. This passage excites us and excites Christians as it should. But you'll see very quickly that we should not have the liberty to embroider Paul's teaching with fanciful speculation from us or other people. I sometimes shudder to think what Bible teachers have done with these truths of eschatology. Eschatology is the teaching about Christ's return. In a previous time in Canada and the United States, probably through the 30s, 40s, maybe into the 50s, you would know that there were church conferences about these questions of eschatology. And so churches split and divided over the issues. People became lost in a way, a maze of prophecy. They argued over what was called the millennium, whether you were pre or post or ah. They argued about the tribulation, again, whether you pre or post. If you were probably under about 35 or 40, um, you probably don't know what that means. That would require another whole series of sermons. And so different schools of thought across Canada developed their own set of charts and diagrams about when all this would happen and exactly how it would take place, the exact sequence of events. Churches and tried to create a prophetic timeline, a detailed schedule and calendar of each event in precise order and sequence. So we demanded dogmatic theology when often we only have relative knowledge. Perhaps our struggle today in the church is that we hardly think about these things at all. It seems that heaven sometimes is almost faded from our mind, even in our hymns. Destiny is a bit of a perplexity rather than a goal. So I think for some people, hope is dimmed. And with it has faded a great deal of persistence and passion, initiative and hope. We're busy building the good life here and now. So our task this morning and our struggle will be to keep the main point the main point. In this passage, Paul uses some broad brushstrokes, 
There's other scriptures that we might add to it. That's not the whole picture. But the point here is to speak, to hear his words to us, to our heart, to our mind. As I get to know you as a congregation over these months, I know that many of you have lost someone who's close to you. Bereavement and death in a family is a very poignant human experience. Some of you in the last few years may have lost parents or grandparents, perhaps a brother or sister. Some of you in the last while have lost a spouse. You started this intimate pilgrimage with a promise to love one another until death. And now you experience that sad moment and you walk the rest of your life on your own. Some of you have lost a child in the sad perversity of life as a parent. You had to bury one of your own children. I think that is life fitted most upside down. It is life's greatest contradiction because children should bury their parents. When Leighton Ford, many of you would know his name, when Leighton Ford lost his son Sandy, he wrote in a book about the combination of tears, question, and silence. And he said, when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. Harriet and I have told you deeply lost, hurt deeply when we lost our 36-year-old daughter-in-law some years ago. So may I very gently this morning invite you to bring your heart and mind to a time within your family that you stood at a graveside. And perhaps you felt the warm, salty moisture of your tears run down your cheeks. Perhaps at a service a hymn was sung. Words of hope and comfort were read as you stared down into that dark, bottomless slit in the ground. People embraced each other and embraced you. You held on to each other for support. And then you left and you went home. I think our honest struggle in these moments is to reconcile our faith with our emotions. The words that are read are comforting. But as we walk away from the graveside, we cannot avoid the honest questions that lurk in the shadows of our mind. What happened to them? Where did they go? Where are they now? Will I ever see them again? When Paul wrote to these Thessalonian Christians, they were struggling with similar questions about their loved ones. What happened to the Christian dead when Jesus comes back? Will they miss the blessing of his return called the parousia? And the Thessalonians had addressed these kinds of questions to Paul, either directly or perhaps through Timothy. And so this section that we study this morning is his answer. This is the pastoral situation in the Thessalonian church among the Christians that he needed to address. And I think, honestly, there are also our questions. And the primary purpose of this passage is to encourage them, as we'll see. 
not to answer academic questions or to speculate about the last days. And so please have the passage open in front of you because the point of this passage is actually at the very end. It's in what we call verse 18. When Paul writes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage is the same word that's used for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John. Come alongside one another. Speak into each other. Walk by each other. Encourage each one, another with, each one another with these words. Because in this passage you read it, there are two groups of people, and also in our lives. First, there's the Christian loved ones who have died. Next, there's the Christians like us who are still alive and living. So let's exegete. That means get the truth out of the passage, Paul's answer to them, and see how he comes to this strong pastoral and climax. Back to the start. Ephesians 4.13. We do not want you to be ignorant. The phrase occurs a number of times in Paul's writings letters. It's his way of almost putting his answer in bold or maybe underscoring it. I don't want you to miss this. And there's two things that he wants, about which he wants them to be really clear. First of all, about those who fall asleep. Now that's a metaphor for death, which is at home in the Christian context rather than anywhere else. In John chapter 11, Jesus, who is a friend in the home of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going to waken him up. It reminds us that death as sleep is only temporary. A sleep is followed by the wakening up in the morning, so death will soon be followed by the resurrection. Said on the walls of the catacombs of Rome where Christians were often buried, they found the inscription, good night, the morning comes. The second thing is, verse 13, do not grieve like the rest of men, means people who have no hope. Let's agree that grief and mourning are natural and needed for us and by us, often emotionally necessary. If Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, then we are all at liberty, folks, to do the same. But our grief is not hopeless grief as we stand at a graveside. We see beyond the grief to the hope that lies in Christ and in his coming. We grieve, certainly. But can I say to us this morning, we grieve differently. Christian hope, in contrast to pagan hopelessness, knows that death is followed by resurrection. And the Christian confidence is not based on fanciful good feelings, but on a sure historical foundation. That's what he gives us in verses 14 and 15. I read it. For we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Remember what that means in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's got three movements of thought in that tightly packed verse. First of all, Jesus died and rose again. That is the irreducible core of the gospel. He died for us, but he did not remain in death. He conquered death through the power of the resurrection. Secondly, but then those who have died in him will rise with him. God did not abandon Jesus to death. 
And so he will not abandon Christians who have died either. He will raise them up as he raised Christ so that when he comes, when Jesus comes, they will come too. And thirdly, he says, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is assuring these Thessalonian Christians, and us, that there is an unbreakable solidarity which the people of Christ will come and enjoy this coming. And death has been unable to break it. The Christian hope is that the belief that when Jesus comes, those Christian believers who have died will come with him, and those Christians who are still alive will join them. Death has been a painful separation from those whom we love. So Paul assures us that this separation caused by death is not permanent. The Thessalonian Christians wondered, perhaps we do also, will we ever be together again with those whom we loved? but to have fallen asleep in death. Paul says that by the Lord's own word, no one who has believed in Jesus will be left behind or left out. And he gives what we might call this morning three great eschatological truths. First of all, the return. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. He means strongly that it is the Lord himself who descend. There will be one shout, one shout from the archangel, one blast from the trumpet. It is a fanfare to announce the start of the parousia. It was used to announce the arrival of a king. There is the resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now, Paul does not explain how or in what form those who have died will accompany Christ. But he is clear to state this truth. The dead in Christ will rise first. Remember, the Thessalonians had been worried and agitated for those who had died ahead of them. Will they miss the events of this great day? Paul assures them they will be very prominent in this great day. Thirdly, there is the reunion. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul has talked about the Christian dead. Now he talks about what we'll call the Christian living. That means we who are still alive, or literally the living ones. The reunion with those who have died is often overlooked, but to Paul it is clearly very important. In the New Testament, there are three different Greek words for life. You need to know them. The first one is bios. Bios is just ordinary life. It gives us words like biology. It's the life that's in animals. It's all the stuff we've collected. Everything that is living has bios. Then there's psyche. This is life as soul. It's our psychological being. We might talk about our emotional life or yours words like personality. The third word is the really the most important one. It is the word zoe. Zoe. This is life as God is. It's the kind of life which the Father experiences, Zoe. Which he gave to Jesus, Zoe. And which Jesus gives to us. John 10 and 10. I have come that they might have life, Zoe. And then they might have it to the full. So we're to live. 
not just in the sense that blood flows through our veins, but we're to live alive to God, alive to people, alive to life, and alive to ourselves, alive to this unique purpose that we have in life, till we know who we are and to know why we're here. That is Zoe. Paul says to the church in Philippi, it's a great phrase, I have laid hold of that why Jesus Christ laid hold on me. All of that and more is Zoe. So you see, we're the people with this kind of life. We're the people who in Christ possess Zoe. There's something that each, each of us has who is Zoe, the life in Christ, and we must know Maybe not, like live, maybe not live like those who have no hope. But it's because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. So there's an unbreakable solidarity among the people of God, between those who have already died and those who are still alive, which death cannot break. And the embryo of this community which starts on earth, Paul says, will be finalized in heaven. What has been started here will be completed. Here we see through a glass darkly. We peer through a window which is often distorted and fuzzy, stained with all the mud and the dirt of this world. But then we will see perfectly, face to face. Not only that, Paul says, on this day of Christ's return, he does not come alone. God will bring with, with him, with Jesus, all those who have fallen asleep in him. They will not miss out on anything. They will be included in this cosmic intervention. So it answers the question, will we ever see them again? And the answer is yes. Paul's great finale. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now you see the purpose of this passage. Why it gets to verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As I think back over some 15, 55 years as a pastor, perhaps the greatest privilege Harry and I have ever known over these years in pastoral ministry has been to sit with, a people, with people and sit with a family as someone died. And they move silently from this world to the next. Now I know that that may not appeal to some of you. But can I tell you this morning from us, that's been one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. It's been a great honor, a great privilege to be with people in those intimate times. And can I say to you within your families or groupings of friends here at Central, if at all possible, no believer should die alone. There should be someone with them. And if possible, we should sing believers from this world into the presence of God. Many years ago, a doctor once told me that hearing is the last sense that we have. So you wonder, what will we do? Don't be afraid to read. Read familiar scripture. Join with others and 
sing together as someone moves quietly and peacefully into the presence of God. Let me tell you about a lady who was a good friend of ours. Her name was Marg. She was in her last few days in hospital here in Victoria. One day, I remember it was a holiday Monday. The hospital phoned our house and said, are you Pastor Cowan? I said, yes, I am. You're Mark's pastor? I said, yes, I am. This, she said, Mark doesn't have long to go. We're having a terrible time with her. She's tossing and turning. She's fighting with us, shouting and yelling. We have her restrained, and somehow that's still not working. Can you come and help us? I'll be honest, I didn't quite know what we were going to come and do. But I said, sure, we'll come. Harry and I headed up to the hospital. And Mark was tossing and turning and thrashing around. She was arguing and shouting with people. What are we going to do? I remember what this doctor had told me about hearing. So Harry and I started to sing. We sang things like, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We sang the children's hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We sang things like, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. We read together to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. You remember the little children's prayer? This night I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. So we said, sang and said all these things. And little by little, Mark began to settle down. And as we sung familiar things, my Jesus, I love thee, she sang along with us. She settled down. We read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she settled down. In my father's house are many mansions. And she settled down. I think it was the next day Mark quietly passed away. I understand very humanly why we try to hold on to people, why we want them to stay with us. So we try to hold on to them even for a few more minutes. I understand that. Yet we know that there will come a time when we'll have to let them go. We don't have a choice. We have to give them permission to cross over. People sometimes need permission to move on. We need to grant it. Remember C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia? The wardrobe door is the opening between this world and the world of Narnia. And heaven is so, so much more than Narnia. So would you use your imagination very carefully with me for a moment? 
on our side of the door, we see life. And we're holding onto someone's hand, perhaps for the last few moments. Humanly, we do not want to let him go. They may seem to be falling asleep. But on the other side of the door, a cry goes out through all of heaven. Heavenly hands are stretched out to welcome them. It's time to welcome a new child of God home. Angels come from the four corners of heaven to form a guard of honor. Their name is announced. And as they step through that thin veil to us, they fall asleep. But on the other side, they become fully alive, more alive than they've ever been. We have to let them go to be welcomed home. And there in the midst of it stands one that they worship for all their life. His name is Jesus. Jesus. No matter where you walk today, malls, stores, schools, doesn't matter. You'll see the word Nike. Some running shoes and t-shirts, the Nike swoosh, just do it. But you know that Greek, Nike is a Greek word for victory, a Greek goddess of victory. It was the word that was used to greet the winning runners as they rounded the final curve towards the finishing line with a crowd on their feet cheering them on. Nike, 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 victory. Perhaps that's the cry that greets us as we make it at last to the finishing line. Again, Lewis, at the end of Narnia, he calls it the great story, he says, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Each Sunday, I always find it a challenge to bring a message to a close. Something, as it were, that will tie up all the loose ends. About 10 days ago, I was working in this, in my study at home. Harriet was out. I was just by myself. And the passage came to my mind to, to try to bring this, this great thought together and finish for us this morning. So I looked it up. It's from the apocalypse, the revelation the last book of the Bible. And it tells us at the beginning of the book about the transforming vision that John had. One day he says, a man called John saw a revelation of Jesus as he now is in glory. Please understand, in this passage we'll read in a moment, it is Jesus, I believe, as he is now, risen and glorified. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that the Father would return him to the glory which he had before the world was. This is the picture of Jesus. And with some embarrassment, I tell you this morning, as I started to read, just seeing if it would fit, I started to cry. 
Tears were running down my face. I will try to read it with you this morning without crying. I'm not sure I'll make it. I invite you to stand. The worship team will come back. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, like glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. When I finished that, I don't remember how, but I was on my knees kneeling. The book of Psalms reminds us that much of our worship involves our bodies. We raise our hands, we come and we kneel, we shout for joy. So as we sing our final hymn in just a moment, an old hymn, you know it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I thought a lot about this, but I'm just going to come and kneel down here. And if you wish, you're invited just to come and kneel with me on the stairs around. It's not about a performance. It's not about your spouse or whoever you're with, just you. Just come and slip out of your seat. Perhaps you come down from the balcony. If you're online, you can do it at home. I promise you I will do nothing to embarrass you. You just come and kneel. You can kneel through the whole hymn or a verse two and then go back. It's a simple act of response. Do you know that one day we will all bow our knee to Jesus? We will all bow our knee to Jesus and worship. 
This is a rehearsal for that day. And if kneeling doesn't work for you, I understand that my knees don't work very well either. You can just come and stand. It's not a performance. You can just come and kneel or stand for a few minutes as we sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.